Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous. I'm continuing today a short series on what evidentialism is not in Christian apologetics um, and just in general I would consider myself an evidentialist and I'm trying to clear up some misconceptions about evidentialism in this series. Uh, this is part two. I'm going to start today by discussing a um, anti-evidentialist idea concerning the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that I discussed last time as well, and uh, some concerns I have about it, but then that's going to lead into uh, concerns that people would have about evidentialism. In a um, in a lecture that Dr. Uh, Bill Craig gave on the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. He used the phrase to draw the sting of evidentialism. And he said that his theory of um, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, which is similar to that of Alvin Plantinga, um, needs to be thought of in a certain way in order to draw the sting of evidentialism. I'm not going to read the whole quote in the interests of time. Um, and the, the idea was something to do with the number of defeaters, as they would call it, or apparent defeaters that are going to be coming at the believer, especially a believer who is in the intellectual world or who is uh, self-aware, but even someone who's not, uh, but who encounters skeptics. And there was a concern about the the number of objections that would be coming at this person. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that um, I think unintentionally such statements about needing a defeater defeating internal witness of the Holy Spirit to draw the sting of evidentialism could give the impression that objectively the evidence is against Christianity. Now, I don't think that's what Dr. Craig meant, okay? A um, little more questionable about Dr. Plantinga because he was uh, known for saying that the historical argument for Christianity doesn't work. And that was part of what drew uh, Tim and me into, uh, into prominence in the philosophy of religion and apologetics. So, you know, Plantinga was saying, you know, the historical argument doesn't work, so we need to have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. But I, I don't think that's what Dr. Craig means, uh, for no other reason than that I know he's been very enthusiastic about uh, Tim's and my work defending the historical argument against Plantinga's objection. But it could unwittingly give that impression that, yeah, actually, you know, Christianity isn't it doesn't have more evidence for it than against it. It just doesn't objectively, so we got to have something else to cling to. And I think that's a very unfortunate impression to give, and we want to be very careful, uh, unless you really think that. You know, if you don't really think that, you want to be very careful not to give that impression. But the other impression that I think is concerning, which I think may, may actually be what Dr. Craig believes, is that after you've once accepted Christianity, committed yourself to Jesus Christ, become a believer, there should be some kind of lock on it. 
so that it becomes unfalsifiable. It's not like it was unfalsifiable before, maybe, but that at that point, it's like now you could never be rational in uh, changing your mind on it. It's, it's locked. And then the concern is there are so many at least apparent objections, apparent defeaters being brought that if you don't have this defeater defeating uh, trump card of a special kind of internal witness of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be in a situation where it could possibly be rational to deconvert. And that we want that to be impossible because it would be apparently against the character of God or something to allow that to be possible because apostasy is so bad. It's such a such a, a bad thing. And I disagree very strongly with that as well. Um, I think that the very fact that Christianity includes very contentful historical propositions means that in principle, <clears throat> however implausibly, it might be falsifiable even after you've believed it. So I, I'm just going to give a kind of a, a wild out there point. Um, you've spent all your life believing that Abraham Lincoln existed. Is it in principle possible that some kind of load of evidence could come in that you um, that you would have to take into account that would turn out that Abraham Lincoln was a hoax, that he never existed. Well, you know, in theory, obviously, it's very hard to imagine even what that would look like. But in principle, yes, because the proposition that Abraham Lincoln existed is a historical proposition. So it's it's hard for me to imagine something that's contentful and historical, where we're going to say, well, once you believe it, you have to go on believing it no matter what. In principle, it's not even possible for it to be falsified by later evidence that would come in. Um, and even when it's a matter of what would be so bad, you know, to, to disbelieve or that this would just be terrible to disbelieve, um, and therefore God wouldn't allow that to be the case. I, I'm very wary of that because God allows a lot of terrible things to happen in the world. And, and that's where the problem of evil comes from, right? You know, we might think in the abstract that God would not allow children to be sex trafficked, and yet he does. So um, I think we need to be careful about deciding a priori God would not permit you to ever be in a situation or anybody to ever be in a situation where he had once accepted uh, Christianity and then later was justified in believing it to be false. So I, I think that's not uh, not accurate. Um, so I see these as concerns. Certainly sociologically, if we go out there and say, hey, you know, I, I believe in the evidence trumping internal witness of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, no matter what you say, I'm never going to change my mind. Um, that it doesn't have a good look. I'll say that. And, you know, and, and maybe if, if that were the case, and if you really think you have this special witness, you, you just have to bite the bullet on that. But I think that that should raise some concerns right away. But that leads me to a misconception of evidentialism, which I want to refute. And this is the misconception that you're 
if you're an evidentialist, or if you are the um, follower of an evidentialist, the disciple or the convert of an evidentialist, you're always supposed to be on the brink of apostasy. You know, you're always just one unanswered objection away from dumping the whole thing, ditching the whole thing. Um, and if, that if you if you come up with something that you can't that you can't um, answer, then you just have to say, okay, that's it goodbye, I'm not a Christian anymore because, you know, I I was uh, a convert brought to Christianity by Lydia McGrew, and she taught me that I needed to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and I need to not make Christianity unfalsifiable, so sorry, now it's been falsified by by Christianity. Um, so first of all, in answering this misconception, because I, I would say, no, that's not what evidentialism is or implies. Um, I don't consider just being shaken or having doubts to be apostasy. So when I use the term apostasy, I don't use it just for a person who has had, perhaps temporarily, um, you know, his, his confidence in Christianity shaken, where his credence level has dropped below some threshold because he's been sort of hit by something unexpected. Um, because that's, you know, A, psychological, and B, uh, often is or should be merely temporary. So I would be talking about, if I talk about apostasy, I'm talking about, you know, identifying yourself as being an agnostic now or an uh, unbeliever, a non-Christian, uh, in a way that, you know, you expect this to last for a while. And that's how I'm using the term. Um, and it's definitely not rational and not something I advocate to dump Christianity just because of something you can't answer. This, by the way, is where I really think we need to get away from the concept of all the many objections to Christianity. And, and I feel this way, too, about all the many alleged contradictions in the Gospels. Both of those expressions give the impression of this sort of long line of objections that are just coming toward you. And it's like the task of Sisyphus, the guy who rolled the stone up the hill and that it would always roll back down, to answer them. And you've got to answer them all or else you're not done or you're not confident. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, I wrote something several years ago that some people have been sharing around on social media, and uh, I don't think I'm going to be this eloquent again anytime soon. So I'm going to go ahead and read what I wrote here. Evidentialism is not, never has been, and never should be an intellectual game of whack-a-mole. It is not a matter of trudging through a landscape of endless objections, answering one, and then plotting on to tackle another. And if that is what students think it is, then the sooner they are disabused of this notion, the better. Rather, they should be encouraged to lift up their heads and see the landscape at large. They should be taken up to a mountaintop and shown the lie of the land. They should come to see the objections and replies they already know as part of a pattern so that they can fit objections they encounter into the pattern. This will be immeasurably strengthening to their faith. So, what I'm saying here is that we need to see the cumulative case for Christianity, and then we need to set objections into the cumulative case. Another great quotation that I recently shared was something that Tim read from Waitley, 
<clears throat> and the fallacy of objections that we've got to look at, you know, which side has the more and the weightier objections that uh, are apparently unable to be answered. Not just, oh my goodness, there are all of these objections, because any proposition is going to, in theory, have objections that can be brought or could shake you. There are all kinds of wacky ideas out there, okay? So uh, if you are confronted with objections that you don't immediately know how to answer to Christianity, what are some procedures that I think you should go into? Well, first, I think you should try to reflect on the evidence that you may already have that you're just having trouble bringing to full consciousness. This is true of a lot of things. I think most of us have evidence that we never reflect on for the proposition that the earth is round, okay? You know, how, how often do we really think about, you know, what is my evidence that the earth is round? Um, or that the moon landing really happened and that it wasn't faked, okay? We've probably seen a variety of uh, video clips. We've uh, heard of the existence of people like, you know, Buzz Aldrin or whatever. And um, so we probably have a lot more out there, but, we, you know, unless you actually are trying to refute a flat earther or a person who thinks that the moon landing was faked, you, you don't reflect on this consciously. So I'm going to encourage you to start reflecting on what you already have. And this is something I touched on last time when I was talking about the Gospels and their verisimilitude and how this is something that even a, uh, a, a layman, you know, can have available to him. It's not highly technical. Of course, something that I strongly try to do in making common sense rigorous is to bring that to full consciousness, to make it more readily available. But look into that. Think about that. All right. Second, seek more information. That's so important. I'm going to go so far as to say, and I'll be coming to back to this in the next video, that almost anyone, perhaps anyone, that you encounter in our information-saturated age, someone who's living right now, who gets in touch with you and says, I am an exhibit of a rational deconverter, isn't. Because there's so much information out there and I have never interacted with someone who says that, whom, you know, when I hear what their reasons were, I am inclined to say of them, oh, okay, you know, yeah, they, they were a rational deconverter. Again and again, what I'm finding are uh, what I would consider to be misconceptions of Christianity or maybe uh, even overly rosy conceptions of Christianity, okay, with the idea that, you know, I, I, need, to, um, I need to receive some kind of special... Uh, help if I'm thinking of deconverting something like a voice or something like that, and then you know you didn't get that. Um, or I I saw someone recently was talking about deconversion and had this idea that God throws people unjustly into hell, um, and was citing a verse in Revelation where it says that you know people are thrown into the lake of fire for 
unbelief and then was saying, well, you know, does this just mean simple unbelief no matter no matter what, no matter what your circumstances are, that would be unjust. So therefore, you know, I can't believe Christianity because Christianity requires me to believe in a God who would just throw some poor person who was doing his best into hell. And my response there would be, well, why, you know, why interpret that verse to be saying that God throws people unjustly into hell? You know, uh, why not just say, we're going to take unbelief here to mean blameworthy unbelief. And then, you know, we're going to trust God concerning, I mean, if you're a Christian and you have other positive evidence, you're going to trust God to, to be just. You have evidence that God is just, in other words. Um, but it's not like the verse says, you know, God is a peevish, abusive parent who throws people unjustly into hell, so shut up and believe in this God. You know, the verse doesn't say that. So um, the idea that Christianity requires us to believe in a God like that is, um, you know, obviously not true. The idea of Christianity is that God is indeed worthy of worship, and this can have a actually not a very strained influence, completely legitimate influence on our interpretation of individual verses. So just in general, seek more information and um, don't define Christianity in some extremely rigid fashion and then say, well, that's refuted. So, and that's of the essence of Christianity. So bye-bye. That's not to say there is no essence of Christianity. I think there is, but uh, that God throws people in hell Uh, abruptly and unjustly is not part of it. Um, So if you are listening to this audio, you have access to a ton of information. And uh, I want here to put in a quick plug for Jonathan McClatchy's wonderful ministry, Talk About Doubts. Please look into that. Okay. Third, pray. Now you may say, but you know, we're imagining a situation where my faith in Christianity is shaken. So, you know, how can I pray? Why would I pray? Um, Well, here is where we need to be careful to distinguish theism from Christianity. And I talked about this, I think, briefly in the previous video, that there's a tendency uh, on the part of those who talk about the internal witness, the Holy Spirit, to move sometimes just in the course of a sentence from, you know, we have... uh, evidence that's available to us, you know, even if we're not in touch with a lot of information for believing in the existence of God to, you know, we have this uh, special special witness of the Holy Spirit for believing in the existence of Christianity or the truth of Christianity. And as I pointed out there, the Apostle Paul doesn't say that they are without excuse in Romans 1 for not believing that Jesus came to the earth and died and rose again. He says that that people, even the heathens, are without excuse for not believing in God's eternal power and Godhead. So um, even if you have objections to Christianity that you cannot immediately answer, I think by reflection, there are a lot more arguments that are available that are not in these highly, you know, empirical type arguments, but are based just on things like that your mind exists, that beauty exists, that uh, 
that the, the world exists and so forth, that there is a God and that he's a, you know, maker of all things and that he's uh, even, even good, I would go so far as to suggest. And in that case, you can pray. And many, many um, agnostics have prayed. Many seekers have prayed. God, if you're there, please show me. Please help me to find the answers. And I think you should do that, even if your faith has been shaken by some objection that you can't answer. Uh, I think that's completely legitimate. And I don't think it's fake. I think you can have sufficient reason to think that you're not just, you know, praying to the, the you know, spaghetti monster or something that it's worth doing that, okay? And I also think that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, whom I believe I have evidence that he exists, uh, is to clarify the mind for the appreciation of evidence, the, the, the just and accurate understanding of evidence, so to clear the understanding, and you can pray for that. And fourth, remember that scientific theories that you no doubt believe and justifiably believe almost always have anomalies about them that have not yet been answered. This is really important to remember, and this relates to that fallacy of objections that I mentioned before. Um, that, again, not a game of whack-a-mole. It's not like if you don't hit all the moles on the head, you have to abandon the view or become agnostic about the view. Um, it's a matter of the balance of the evidence, okay? The um, Where it all comes to when you put it all together, when you look from that height, when you see the lie of the land, when you put those objections into a context, okay? Um, and that's not just religious, okay? That's not, not just a religious consideration. That's something that uh, philosophers of science and scientists are always dealing with, and it's legitimate when you have evidence for a view initially to have a certain amount of stubbornness. I don't mean ultimate, like nothing could ever convince me otherwise stubbornness, but a certain amount of stubbornness to say, you know, I may not know the answer to this, but because I have so many uh, other lines of evidence for it, I, I think there's probably an answer out there that I just don't know yet. And again, that's not some kind of irrational faith. Um, I want to emphasize here in closing for today, the importance of contentful apologetics as normal in discipleship. Even, even for children, by the way, um, but all the more so for adults. Apologetics should not be often some little corner that only the hyper-intellectual are doing or being exposed to. That's one of the reasons that I call this channel the place where we make common sense rigorous. Every Christian should be taught positive evidences for Christianity and some basic blacks and moves to respond to objections, both to theism and to Christianity. We shouldn't be insulating people from that. I think a grave responsibility rests with those who disciple. And they should really think about their, their role and be careful about giving the impression that I talked about at the beginning that, you know, even if you unintentionally give this impression that the evidence isn't, you know, on our side. Do you really think that? And if you don't, be really careful not to give that impression. Um, 
And, you know, I, I don't want to say anything too harsh, but um, let's suppose we imagine someone who's very consciously teaching fideism, okay, who's saying, no, if you have objections, you just need to have more faith. You just need to believe, okay? You just need to pray harder. Now, I, I suggested praying, but I hope it could be seen how that isn't just, you know, uh, pray away all your objections, just pray harder. I was putting that into an evidential context, you know, praying that God would help you to find answers as opposed to, you know, just pray for more faith. Uh, you know, faithing as like a verb, you know, let's just try to faith harder. Um, and that that's how, that's how Christianity should be held. If you teach that, that that's, that's how it should be held. It has to be held by faith rather than reason, you're taking on a grave responsibility. And uh, you need to realize that there are going to be other uh, religions who are going to say the same, other uh, other groups that are going to say the same and are going to tell their believers that. So if you go out and you try to convince a Mormon to become a, a Christian or convince a Muslim to become a Christian or whatever, um, you know, you're going to be up against this, you know, well, just shut up and believe type thing and a lot of social pressure to do that. And do you really want to be putting that kind of social pressure on people here and now? And I, I want to emphasize, I started off with a reference to a paper by Dr. Craig and Dr. Craig does, he brings up evidence. So I'm not saying that he's somebody who's just saying shut up and believe. I'm not saying that, but unfortunately there are uh, plenty of groups out there and plenty of pastors who are teaching fideism in a very clear, self-conscious kind of way. Um, I believe that they are sincere, but I would challenge them to think again, especially once they realize the, the consequences of that and how vulnerable that leaves their, um, their flock to deconversion. You know, sometimes when we contemplate the consequences of our actions, it helps us to go back and question our first principles. You know, if somebody says, I'm okay to, to drink and drive, uh, I'm out there, I can tell that, you know, I'm in control. And then he gets into an accident and he kills somebody. That can bring him up short to say, oh, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe I wasn't okay to drink and drive. Um, and it's just a, a metaphor, but if you are somebody who has said, you know, my flock doesn't need evidences because we have the liturgy or we have the sacraments or we have faith, so we don't need evidence, and then someone deconverts, I hope that that would make you, <clears throat> you know, think again that you should have made uh, an evidentially based apologetic a more normal part of your discipleship of the people who were following you. Now, next time, uh, I'm going to be coming back to this question of deconversion, and I'm going to be asking the question, aside from, you know, almost unimaginable circumstances, such as if we were to be uh, convinced, how would we be convinced that Abraham Lincoln didn't really exist or, you know, that your spouse was really an android or something like that? Is there a somewhat more realistic scenario where it would be understandable that a person would find it rational to deconvert, somewhat less far-fetched than an analogy to those. And um, is this 
a problem for evidentialism if we say yes. And I'm going to say yes in a qualified way. There is a less completely far-fetched type of scenario, but, but, and come back next time to hear what the but is and why that is not, uh, I believe, a uh, theologically damaging admission uh, and it certainly does not collapse back into, uh, you know, evidentialism as a game of whack-a-mole. It isn't like that at all, because it is still a, a scenario that's rather extreme. Um, so I want to talk about that ne next time rather than trying to fit it in today. So please come back next time for the next part, possibly the last part of what evidentialism is not. And please like and subscribe and share the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.